Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. Contraception is an incredibly beneficial service that is almost an unambiguous good for women and their families when they have access to it. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Starting in 2013, the Affordable Care Act mandated that private health insurance plans fully cover a broad range of contraceptive methods with zero cost sharing. That meant no co-payments and no deductibles for the patient. Now, it's been well documented, including in the pages of Health Affairs, that this new coverage yielded an increase in the use of prescription contraceptives. There's one category of contraceptives known as long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs. Before the ACA, there was a slow but steady increase in their use. But one barrier to using LARCs is the high cost of initiating their use, whether it's the insertion of an IUD or a subcutaneous implant. Before the ACA mandate, this cost was a particular barrier for people who were enrolled in health plans that had high deductibles, since the patient could potentially have to bear the full cost of the insertion. So how did the ACA contraception mandate affect the use of LARCs? That's the subject of today's health policy. I'll be speaking with Dr. Nora Becker, an assistant professor in the Division of General Medicine at the University of Michigan. She and co-authors published a paper in the April issue of Health Affairs about enrollment in high-deductible health plans and LARC use for reproductive age women between 2010 and 2017, which covers the period before and after the ACA mandate went into effect. Dr. Becker, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm really eager to talk about what you found, but we're going to need to set the stage for our listeners. Let's begin with what is a LARC and why is access to LARCs so important? It's a great question and it's a great place to start. So LARCs stand for Long Acting Reversible Contraceptive Methods, and they include IUDs, intrauterine devices, and subcutaneous implants. And this is a category of contraceptives that have become available to women really in the past two decades. Um, there were older, older models with the same name, but they're really not the same products, not the same devices. Um, so these are newer methods. They are, they're really fantastic for patients for several reasons. So almost any woman can use them. Unlike, for instance, the contraceptive pill, women with hypertension can't use it. Women with migraines with aura can't use it. Almost any woman can use a LARC method. And they work really, really well. They're almost 100% effective. We're talking 99.7% effective after you get them inserted with a minor office procedure. And once they're in, they work. I, I, put, I put these methods in myself in clinic and I tell my patients they set it and forget it. And then they're quickly reversible. So when a woman does decide that she wants to start trying to have a baby, they're easy to remove and return to fertility is almost immediate. So they're great products. Why is access to them important? Broadly taking a step back, access to contraception is one of the most important health services available for reproductive age women. Access to contraception enables women to exercise control over their own fertility. And we know that women have fewer children when they're able to exercise that control. They have better health outcomes for the pregnancies that they do have. But benefits of contraception go beyond just uh, a woman's own health care. Contraception actually saves society money in terms of total health care spending because contraception is much cheaper to give to patients than obstetric care. And even beyond that, 
contraception has been shown in the health economics literature to have tremendous financial benefits for women and their families. Women with access to contraception earn more money. They have better professional outcomes. Their families are higher income. They have less entry into poverty. Contraception closes the gender wage gap. So contraception, and this is why I study it, <laughs> is, is an incredibly beneficial service that is almost an unambiguous good for women and their families um, when they have access to it. And it saves us money and it makes women better off in their health, better off in their finances. As you can probably tell, I love contraception and I'm very passionate about the fact that having access to contraception is really important for women. And LARCs are the best contraceptive methods available. So having access to LARCs is really important for patients. Okay, well, your uh, enthusiasm shines through, and uh, you, but the evidence base for it as well, which is uh, something we always are looking for at Health Affairs. So you've set the stage beautifully for why this is so important. But as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a cost barrier, or there used to be. So uh, you called it a, a minor office procedure, but uh, even a minor office procedure isn't cheap. Uh, so what does it really involve to have the insertion or implantation and uh, you know what is that what is that going to cost a patient if they didn't have insurance coverage for it? yeah so without insurance coverage one of these insertion procedures will cost a woman between 500 to a thousand dollars thinking about that it, you know in terms of the median monthly that's almost the median monthly income in the united states i think the median monthly uh, weekly income excuse me is uh about twelve hundred dollars a week so almost a week's pay for the average woman in the United States, which is why how much of that cost is covered by insurance is so important. We know also from um, work that I and other folks have done that before the ACA mandate went into effect, privately insured women on average were paying about $250 for that insertion. So of that $500 to $1,000 of cost, privately insured women were paying 25 to 50% of it, which is not insignificant. Okay, so you take this significant upfront cost, and just to be clear, that's in contrast to some other methods where the cost might actually be greater over the life of using the method, but you don't have this upfront, you don't have to save up $1,000, which is really hard to do, uh, to, to initiate using birth control pills, right? That, that's a, that, that, so just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, here we're getting into kind of what sort of the way that the human brain processes costs over time. Lumping them all together before the Affordable Care Act went into effect, 10 to $30 a month for is what women were paying for a monthly prescription for their contraceptive pills. That adds up to thousands of potentially thousands of dollars over years. And LARC methods last four years. So actually, if you do the math, it, it, it actually was about equivalent, but it didn't feel that way to patients. We know from behavioral economics that that cost just feels really different to patients and they make different decisions when they're faced with a small cost distributed over a long time period as opposed to a big upfront cost. And, and we know that that cost was a barrier. Okay, so the ACA is enacted and it puts in place uh, this contraception uh, coverage mandate. Right. Uh, how does that affect the cost to the patient for contraception in general and LARCs in particular? So the Affordable Care Act mandate mandated that private health plans cover all categories of prescription contraceptives with no out-of-pocket costs. That includes co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. For 
the pill, that meant that health plans had to cover at least one pill with no co with no prescription copays. But for LARC methods, it meant that that whole deductible cost was covered because the cost of a LARC for an in-office procedure usually fell under a deductible rather than a, a copay like a prescription medication would. In actually a prior paper in Health Affairs, I showed that um, you know for the pill, the average monthly cost went from between ten to thirty dollars to zero after the mandate went into effect. But for LARC methods, the average cost went from two hundred and fifty dollars to zero. So the price fell to zero for both types of contraception, but it dropped a lot more for LARC methods. And remember that two hundred fifty dollars is also an average. So there were a lot of women paying more than two hundred fifty dollars before the mandate went into effect. Okay, so we're going to introduce one more dimension here, which is the structure of insurance benefits. So you just said that the pill was usually on a copay, but the insertion is a bigger ticket item. It's not done at the pharmacy. So you're, you're subject to a deductible, which means you have to pay all of that deductible before insurance puts in a penny. Now, some people have low deductibles, but increasingly people have higher deductible plans. And that means it sounds like there are people who would face basically the full cost of initiating a LARC uh, that they'd have to pay out of pocket because they hadn't met their deductible if their deductible's high. But if their deductible's low, as you said before, it's like $250. Some of that must have been people who had low deductible plans. So just exactly. give me a little bit of the architecture here of how the ACA affects coverage for LARCs differently, depending on what kind of insurance you have, just because we have such a simple healthcare system. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about an interaction between sort of a policy and insurance plan benefit design. So as you said, high deductible health plans, they have lower monthly premiums, but higher deductibles. And once you, uh, just to remind folks who maybe don't think about this every day, a deductible is, you know, health services that are subject to a deductible, you pay for all of them until you hit that deductible and then you pay for nothing within a year. And then once you start your plan year, that resets. Women with higher deductibles, if they hadn't yet hit their deductible, and remember reproductive age women, pretty healthy, don't incur a lot in general, don't consume a lot of other health services. So it was very possible and, and we know from looking at the data that you know a woman might walk into the office for a insertion procedure and pay the entire cost of it because she hadn't spent up her deductible like hardly at all in that in the given year what we expected going into looking at this data but we didn't know until we did the study was that women in high deductible health plans on average were probably paying a lot more for LARC methods than women in what I'll call traditional health plans, plans with lower deductibles. So it was possible that this policy affected those women a lot more by dropping the price more. Okay, so we're going to figure out whether or not what you thought might happen was true. After yes, we, we are. <laughs> but we're going to do that after we take a short break. Healthcare decision-making affects patients and families, yet their perspectives are not always factored into health policy discussions. Each month, Health Affairs produces personal essays from the front lines of care through our Narrative Matters series. You can now listen to the authors reading their stories on our Narrative Matters podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, purchase our latest Narrative Matters book, which features essays by some of the leading minds in healthcare today. 
And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Nora Becker about how the Affordable Care Act ushered in changes in insurance coverage that also affected access to and use of contraceptives, particularly long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs. Before the break, we were talking about benefit design and benefit structure and how one of the barriers to using a LARC is that uh, if you hadn't fulfilled your deductible, you might have to pay out of pocket a pretty uh, significant amount uh, to initiate using the LARC. And so you said the the hypothesis going in was that the ACA change would have a bigger effect on people with high deductibles and low deductibles. Before you answer whether or not you found that, there's something really interesting in your paper, and you alluded to it a little before the break, about the annual spending patterns of people with high deductibles because it resets every year. So how does that really work? What does it look like for someone coming in for an office visit in February relative to someone coming in for an office visit in October? What it means is that um, somebody coming in in October is more likely to have consumed other health care over the course of the calendar year. They're, on average, probably going to spend less for a LARC method than a woman in February whose plan year has just started. And you saw uh, patterns in the cost or the the out-of-pocket costs that matched that sort of uh, calendar cycle. We absolutely did, yeah. Um, And we did see some patterns as well that suggested that women were making strategic choices about when they got their LARC methods, that rates of LARC methods went up over the course of the year. However, we only saw those patterns among women in high deductible plans. Yeah, so this is a, I know it's not the core finding of your paper, but the notion that people consume healthcare services and make strategic decisions based on uh, plan structure and plan design, as opposed to something you might imagine like medical need, uh, (laughs) is, is of, it should uh, alarm us some. So let's go into your findings. Your, your hypothesis here is that the change is different if you're in a high deductible plan than in a traditional plan with lower deductibles, and what'd you find? All the prior work looking at privately insured women had just lumped these two populations together and sort of reported average outcomes. And we felt that, as you said, these were important groups to examine separately because we did have reason to think that women in high deductible plans were more affected by the mandate and potentially would have changed their behavior more in response and gotten more LARC methods. However, I do just want to say that that wasn't guaranteed going into this because there is also a differing story you could tell, which is that women signed up for high deductible plans because they did, they wanted LARC methods less. So, you know, they they knew that their deductibles would be higher, but they knew that they didn't want these methods. So that's why they chose them, why they chose these plans. So it, I just want to say, you know, this wasn't a guarantee going in. Uh, this was our hypothesis, but it's why it's important to, to look at the data and test it. So what did we find? So we used a large national data set of health insurance claims from employer-sponsored health insurance. We looked at reproductive age women, and we compared two groups, women in high deductible health plans, uh, in a high deductible health plan from 2010 to 2017, so crossing the time period the mandate was implemented, compared to women in a traditional health plan for that same time period. And we looked at two outcomes. One was what were the average out-of-pocket costs for LARC insertions for these two groups pre and post? And then what were the rates of LARC insertions for these two groups pre and post? So 
with regards to the cost, we saw exactly what we expected to see. So women in traditional plans before the mandate were paying on average $75 for their insertions. That dropped to zero after. Women in high deductible health plans paying on average $350 for their insertions, and that dropped to zero after. So we saw exactly what we what we sort of hypothesized we would see, which is that the price was higher for women in high deductible health plans before the mandate, and it dropped by more after the mandate. So what happened with the LARC insertion rates? So, and I'll just give you some numbers. So these are uh, per quarter out of a thousand, how many LARC insertions, out of a thousand enrolled women, how many LARC insertions did we see? For women in traditional plans before the mandate, four. After, seven. Women in high deductible health plans before, two. After, seven. So both groups went up over time, but the rates of LARC insertions among women in high deductible health plans went up by much more. And the rates went up actually by 35% more than they went up among women in traditional health plans. Put another way, for the mandate, women in high deductible health plans were using getting LARC insertions at half the rate of women in traditional health plans. And those rates essentially became equal after the mandate went into effect. This is a big change in behavior for this population. Um, and you know, even though we we went in sort of hypothesizing that we might see this, the effect size was honestly larger than I expected. Well, and going back to your earlier question of were people selecting high deductibles because they didn't, uh, they knew they weren't going to be consuming this or uh, that seems to have gone away. If the ultimate rates are identical, it suggests that the pre-existing differences were really all about affordability. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really fascinating because, you know, we always we always sort of in my 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 background is in economics. We think, you know, oh, people are rational when they pick a health plan. They think about what healthcare services am I going to consume? And then they do all the math to think about how much that would each plan will cost them. And then they pick the cheapest plan. That clearly isn't how women are picking these plans, because if they were, we wouldn't see such a big change in the price that they faced. Well, and also you were looking at people with private coverage often determined probably by their employer. They may not have had any choice. In fact, they, many of them probably were in a high deductible plan whether they wanted to be or not because that's what their employer was offering. Absolutely. And this is another reason why it's important to study this population is that increasingly patients are actually not being given the option of whether to choose a traditional or a high deductible health plan. And their employers are just switching all their employees to high deductible health plans. In the time period of this study from 2010 to 2017, enrollment in high deductible health plans went from 14% of the private health insurance market to 40%. This is an increasing percentage of people are being put in these plans, whether by choice or by not. So it's really important to see how this plan benefit design impacts their behavior. And now you're at Michigan, which is a hotbed of work on value-based insurance design, asking the question of whether uh, broad deductibles and copayments that are not nuanced by service are actually, in some instances, counterproductive. And it sounds like, based on your opening comments about the positive effects of, of contraception and LARCs in particular, you might have employers who think they're saving some dollars by uh, moving their employees and the employees' dependents into a high deductible plan, and then these other implications that uh, they weren't aware of. Of course, it's all now gone under the ACA, but those were decisions, uh, some of them uh, made long before and, and that uh, exist in, in the context of other services as well now. 
Yeah, well, actually, that gone under the ACA is another question mark, because, you know, the other thing to know about this mandate is that since it was put into place in 2013, it's been pretty much continuously legally challenged in the courts on the grounds of religious freedom. And in July of 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that any employer could actually opt out of this piece of the mandate if they had a moral objection. And so, you know, it's not clear how many employers will choose to do that, but it's no longer sort of really a guaranteed thing for a woman um, with employer-sponsored health insurance that her employer really is obligated to provide her with a plan that provides coverage for large with no out-of-pocket costs. And just as we're wrapping up, to be clear, you were studying a commercially insured population, but another large group of uh, reproductive age uh, women are covered by Medicaid. And and the rules there are quite different, if you could just uh, make sure people understand that. Yeah. So Medicaid is a state insurance program, um, but almost every state provides very generous coverage of LARC methods. Um, so uh, this was really a problem for the uh, privately insured population. Um, and the privately insured population is an important population to study, especially if, we're, if we care about reproductive women's health, because reproductive women are not on Medicare. <laughs> they're either on Medicaid or they're privately insured, and 68% of them are privately insured. And you know, we have in our heads that people with Medicaid are poor and people with commercial insurance are wealthy. You know, on average, yes, people with commercial insurance are higher income, but it's not, there's actually about 25% of the commercially insured population are below the poverty limit. And 60% of them earn between 100 to 400% of the poverty limit. So are still sort of low to middle income. They're a very large and diverse proportion of our, of our population. It's important to understand how they're, infect, how they're affected by health policies. Yeah, it's a great reminder that there are a lot of low-wage workers in firms that offer coverage, and they they uh, have private insurance that is their primary source of coverage for these services. Well, just as we finish up, you started by talking about your own clinical practice. Um, maybe you could wrap us up with just um, a little bit more on how you think the research you've done here plays out in the real world of practice that you uh, inhabit every day. Yeah, so I'm a primary care doctor um, and I do put in IUDs and implants in my clinic. Uh, I'm very happy and proud that I can provide that service for my patients. Um, and so I see the benefits that my patients get from these methods every day. Increasingly, they're, they're, increasingly patients are choosing them and keeping them and using them for, for years and years and really benefiting from how well they work for patients. You know, I know from the literature that the, all of the long-term and societal benefits of these methods. But I also see, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, just the everyday benefits that women get um, from being able to, to really make their own reproductive choices and use the best products available to do so. Well, Dr. Becker, thank you so much for doing the research and telling the story behind it and bringing it to life in your daily practice. It's been great having you uh, as a guest on A Health Policy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, 
Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.